Now in chapter 30, Judah here is admonished not to turn to Egypt for help against the Assyrian, but to turn to the Lord, for he has glorious things planned for their future. Now, I'm not going to go into detail in this chapter, because it has this one message, and it has been literally fulfilled. Here is one place where the southern kingdom did not, they heard the warning, they did not join up with Egypt in order to be delivered. The northern kingdom did. We have that in Second Kings 17, 4. I'll not turn to it. And the very interesting thing is that the lesson was the northern kingdom went into captivity. Apparently, this is one place where they learned the lesson. But this is for these people, and it includes the southern kingdom, and the day is coming when they will turn to Egypt again. Now, with conditions as they are in the world right now, so many people saying prophecies being fulfilled and means we're right at the end. Let's not be in too big a hurry. Let's only move as God moves today. And let's be careful not to say some things God has not said. Now we come here, verse 1. Woe to the rebellious children, saith the Lord. And how are they rebellious? Verse 2, that walk to go down into Egypt and have not asked of my mouth. God says, this is the fourth woe. And the woe is a woe because it's a warning. He said, don't go to Egypt for help because it won't be very good. Therefore, shall the strength of Pharaoh be your shame and the trust in the shadow of Egypt, your confusion. And he says, any help down there is a mirage on the desert, and their help will be in vain. Now, God says, turn to me, come to me, I will deliver you. And therefore, and this is a marvelous verse here, it's one of the great gems of Scriptures, verse 18. And therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you, and therefore will he be exalted that he may have mercy upon you, for the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for him. Now, don't hurry. Don't say, oh, we are at the end of the age and he's going to come. Who told you that? God says, you let me work this out because I have not given you any dates. Learn to wait upon the Lord. And we're told today that this matter of looking for the Lord Jesus to take his church out is a matter of waiting. And we're told, Isaiah will tell us this later on, they that wait on the Lord will renew their strength. All of this tension and pressure today, trying to rush God. Friends, he's in no hurry. And maybe things over there are not like you think they ought to be, and you and I'd like to rearrange it. You let the Lord work it out. He's got eternity ahead of him, and apparently he doesn't seem to be in a hurry. And when you and I get in step with him, it's going to make life lots easier for us down here. This is a marvelous chapter, and it has this personal message for us today. And that was all that I was interested in bringing out in this chapter. Now, in chapter 31, again, the prophet warns God's people not to look to Egypt for help, but to look to the Lord, for he will defend Jerusalem. Now, so pressing was the danger, 
And so evident was the likelihood of Israel turning to Egypt that the prophet continued to warn Judah of the futility of such a measure. And in the future, these people are going to turn to the wrong ally. They'll accept an antichrist. And that is the thing God warns them of here. And God will judge those that will turn to this outside help and not turn to him. And this is the fifth woe now. Verse 1, Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help. And I'd say to you and me, it has a message for us. Woe to you and me today when we turn away from God and expect to turn to some little materialistic or human help. Don't misunderstand. God doesn't intend you to go out into space, launch out there, and just hang up in space. God expects you to be reasonable and all that sort of thing. But in the final analysis, what does have top priority as far as help is concerned? Where do you go to for help? To your banker? Even to your preacher? Or to this radio teacher here? Where do you go for help? Don't go to us. Every now and then somebody writes me, what should I do? Friends, I don't know what to do in many of the problems that arise in my own life. And I don't think you should turn to man. In the final analysis, now it's nice to ask for advice, but in the final analysis, we go to God for help. And the Lord, you remember, said in Psalms 27, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we'll remember the name of the Lord our God. Sure, let's have our chariots. I think we're going to need our atom bombs, by the way. It looks that way in this world today. The Lord Jesus said, A strong man armed keepeth his house. Be sure that you don't act foolish, because faith is not foolishness. And my feeling is that a materialistic philosophy says that it's smart to trust in the stock market or your bank or these things, and that you don't need God is a tremendous mistake today. Now, God says in verse 5, As birds flying, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending also, he will deliver it, and passing over, he will preserve it. Now, he did that in the days of Hezekiah. We're yet to see that in this book of Isaiah. There's one thing for sure, the Assyrian will not take this city. God says in verse 8, Then shall the Assyrian fall with a sword. Not of a mighty man. God says it's not because you're going to be strong enough to drive him out. You won't. God says, I will deal with the Assyrian. And the Lord's people are not to deal with Egypt. Their confidence should be in the Lord. That's the great message of this chapter. It's meant for us today. And may God apply it to your heart and to my heart today. My, how I need this. How I need to be reminded that I don't need to go to Egypt. I need to look to the Lord. Now, friends, we come to this 32nd chapter of Isaiah. And here you have in chapter 32 and 33 and 34 and 35 a wonderful progression in prophecy. And that's the reason that I keep saying that to reach into the Bible and draw a verse out here and a verse there, You could come up with any kind of an interpretation that you want. But you can't do that 
if you take it up systematically. And that's the way it should be considered. You see, God didn't give chapter and verse. Somebody said to me sometime, give us chapter and verse. Well, I said, God didn't give you chapter and verse. I'm not either. Take the whole section. And may I say that this is one place that we need to take the whole thing. We need to eat the whole book, by the way. And it won't give you indigestion, and you won't need to take somebody's pill, but you'll need to find out that the Word of God is teaching something that makes sense. Now we have in this chapter the coming king, the coming tribulation, and the coming spirit. In the first eight verses, we have the person of the king who is to reign introduced. And this chapter actually is a bright note between the fifth and sixth woes. And we have a series of woes that we're in right now. It's a ray of light of God's people in a dark place in that day. And we find the Lord Jesus is introduced again to us at this point. For there can be no millennium, no blessing to this earth without him. Now, we have here verse 1. Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment. Now, the king here, of course, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And the character of his reign is righteousness. Now, the world has never had a kingdom like that so far. Verse 2. And a man shall be as a hiding place from the wind, and a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Now, he's not only king, you see. He's a savior king. He bore the winds and the tempest of the judgment of sin for us. And he is a rock for our protection today. And he was set before us, you remember, back in Isaiah 26, 4, as the rock of ages. And this is another aspect of his ministry under the figure of the rock. He is a place of hiding today. Now, we are told here in verse 3, "...and the eyes of them that see shall not be dim, and the ears of them that hear shall hearken." In other words, there shall be spiritual understanding given to God's people. Now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. True spiritual values will then be ascertained, and they'll be made obvious. And that which should have top priority will have top priority. Now today, moral values are gone. That's our problem. Actually, today in this country, we have no sense of moral values. For you must remember now, for years, there has been taught in our school the evolutionary theory, which makes man an animal. And no moral values are taught. Now, if you talk today, as I do, about law and order and about high state of morality, you're a square. You're a back number. And somehow or another, you're not as smart as these sophisticated, these clever crooks are today. And therefore, we should not listen to that which is old-time stuff. Well, may I say to you that 
the old-time stuff is going to be the future stuff. And that will be a king reigning in righteousness. And that moral values will come back into place. Now, the vile person shall be no more called liberal. That's verse 5. And I love this. This is about as up-to-date as you can get. You see, we have today what is known as limousine liberals. The rich today, for the most part, are liberal. Why? They've already got theirs, and it's not being taxed. So the middleman's being taxed to death today to pay for new projects. And you can be sure of one thing, he can afford to be liberal. After all, that rich man with Lazarus just sitting on the floor at his table eating crumbs, that rich man was a liberal. He was willing to give crumbs, but that was all. And may I say to you that today a vile person is called liberal. In that day, why, the vile person will not be called any more liberal because he'll be seen in the true light. He's a villain, and his heart will work iniquity. The heart of man is desperately wicked. You see, everything in that day is going to be seen in its true colors. No more putting on a front. The mask of hypocrisy will be taken off of not only those who profess to be Christians, but the biggest hypocrites are actually not in the church. They're out of the church today. They are those who pretend to be something that they're not. Now, that is the thing that needs to be. This is a king that's going to reign in righteousness. Now, we come to the second. But before he comes, there's going to be a preceding time of trouble. Listen to this. Rise up, ye women that are at ease. Hear my voice, ye careless daughters. Give ear to my speech. Now, why does he say that? Because of this, women are more sensitive than men. And actually, they sense a danger before a man does. Every man, every husband, before he goes into a business deal, especially a partnership, ought to let his wife meet the man that's a partner. And if you want a true evaluation of human nature, let your wife be the one that will meet the individual and talk with them. Now, may I say this? I try in my home to maintain the place as the head of the house. But friends, I have discovered over a period of years that I'm no judge of human character. And there have been time after time that my wife has said to me, you misjudge that man or that woman because actually they're a very wonderful person. Or, again, you've misjudged that person, you have confidence in them, and you ought not to have confidence in them, because there's something wrong there. And do you know, nine times out of ten, my wife is right. So I've learned that the best thing to do is to listen to her, that is, every now and then, especially in cases like this. Now, God says that even womanhood in that day will become so insensible They won't even recognize the danger that's coming. That's quite interesting, because there'll be women living in pleasure in that day, and they will not have any sense of the coming judgment. And they are dead even while they live in pleasure. 
That's the picture that is here. That's tremendous, is it not? Now we come to the third division here, the promise of the Spirit to be poured out in the last days. Will you hear me carefully now? Verse 15, "...until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness be a fruitful field, and the fruitful field be counted for a forest." Now here is a case where you need to pay attention to the development of prophecy in the Word of God. Now, when will the Spirit be poured out? In the millennium, when Christ reigns. That's going to be the greatest time of spiritual blessing and turning to Christ. Because you see, he'll be reigning in person. But that doesn't mean every knee is going to bow to him at that time. Every knee will bow to him eventually. But this is a time of testing. And it shall come to pass, Joel mentions it, Come to pass afterward that I'll pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my Spirit. Now, friends, that's not a picture today to go with this prophecy. In both Joel and in Acts when Peter quoted it, And he made it very clear. He didn't say it's a fulfillment of prophecy. He says this is that. This is similar to that. In other words, those people in that day were ridiculing these people and saying they were drunk in the morning. That could happen in Los Angeles, but not in that day. They didn't get drunk in the morning. And he's saying that this is going to be like that, which is coming. Now, when will this come? It'll come in the millennium, friends. It'll come in the kingdom when he pours out his Spirit upon all flesh. And on the day of Pentecost, it was only poured out on just a few. But it was similar to that, that is to come. And then there was not the thing Joel said would take place in the heavens and on the earth. And then, by the way, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. I don't find that today. They're all growing long hair. And it says your old man shall dream dreams. Why, today they've all gone to a retirement place and they're playing golf. I don't find this true today. This was not seen on the day of Pentecost either, and it's not being seen today. This looks forward to the coming kingdom. You see, this is always the danger of pulling out a few verses of Scripture and trying to build a system of prophecy. You just let the Word of God speak to us as God wants to, line upon line, precept upon precept. Well, folk don't like it that way. But that's the way God gives it to us. This is important. And I would call attention to that. Now, when we come down to chapter 33, we come down now to the sixth and final woe. And the woe is pronounced here upon those who spoil God's people and the land of Israel. In that day that's coming, and also in the day of Isaiah, and right on down to the very end. And as we've seen that we have here in this 33rd chapter, this last woe that's given. And then you have in chapter 34, the battle of Armageddon. And then you have the kingdom that is coming in chapter 35. Now, will you notice verse 1? This is the prayer of the remnant for deliverance here. Woe to thee that spoilest, and thou wast not spoiled, and dealest treacherously, and they dealt treacherously with thee. 
When thou shalt cease to spoil, thou shalt be spoiled. Now, actually, what Isaiah's putting down here, a great principle that God has operated on from the day that man sinned. And that principle is put down in the epistle of Galatians 6, 7, and it's here also in Isaiah. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. Now, the spoiler here is Sennacherib. He came against Jerusalem during the reign of Hezekiah. And this, I think, is the unanimous decision and conclusion of all the conservative scholars. Now, we find here that it was fulfilled in that day. God says, you spoil my people, I'll spoil you. And that's the reason, as a Christian, you can let God handle all your revenge. God says, avenge not yourself. God says, I will repay. Turn it over to God. He'll do a better job than you and I can do, by the way. Now, in that day, in the final consummation, why, Antichrist, in the restored Roman Empire, and he'll bring that together again, he will destroy that land again, and God will take care of him, and that is at the coming of Christ. And now this prayer, in view of that, because of that day and the day that's yet to come, Verse 2, O Lord, be gracious unto us. We've waited for thee. Be thou their arm every morning, our salvation also in the time of trouble. And this is the prayer. Now, when you come to verse 7 here, you have the plaintive cry of the ambassadors who failed in their mission. Behold, their valiant ones shall cry without. The ambassadors of peace shall weep bitterly. The highways lie waste, the wayfaring man seetheth. He hath broken the covenant, he despised the city, he regardeth no man. Now, looks like we would have learned a lesson today that this is absolutely true. There was the League of Nations, you remember. In fact, before the League of Nations, there was that great peace conference at The Hague. And while it was going on, Germany began First World War, broke all treaties. Then at the end of that, there was the League of Nations. Our President Woodrow Wilson went over, and we were going to make the world safe for democracy. But they forgot to make democracy safe for the world. And peace didn't come. It just led to World War II. Now we are making the world ready for World War III with the United Nations. But we talk about peace, but we're not doing it God's way. And believe me, when that day comes, it'll be too late. But the United Nations and the world rulers are going to wake up to something. Now in verse 13, the third division here, the petition for all peoples to consider God's dealings. Hear ye that are far off what I've done, and ye that are near, acknowledge my might. That is, recognize God. That will be the message. The sinners in Zion, verse 14, are afraid. Fearfulness hath surprised the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Sinners in Zion are those of Israel who are not Israel. And they're godless Israelites, just as they're godless Gentiles today. And the devouring fire here has no reference to the lake of fire in Revelation. 
It's to the fact that our God is a consuming fire and that he is a holy God and he intends to judge in that day. Now, you don't see, even in that land today, any more of the moving of the Spirit of God than you find in Los Angeles. There is this tremendous godless movement that is abroad, and it's growing by leaps and bounds. And that's the reason we're getting out the Word. We don't know how much longer we can do it, but we're going to keep at it as long as we possibly can. And friends, God's people today need to be rather concerned about getting out his word here. And judgment is not a pretty subject. This is not the way to make friends and influence people, to give the messages I'm giving right now in Isaiah. But they're not my messages, they're Isaiah's. And Isaiah's messages are God's messages. My feeling is he'd like to get them out. I'll do my best. All right, now... Will you notice this? He that walketh righteously, this is verse 15, speaketh uprightly, he that despiseth the gain of oppressions. What will be that? This one that stoppeth his ears from hearing of blood and shutteth his eyes from seeing evil. Now, we have here that the one that will turn in faith in Christ of that day and walk in righteousness will be saved. Because in that awful day, we find that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Now we come down to verse 24, and this is the fourth division here. Praise to God for final deliverance. And the inhabitants shall not say, I'm sick. The people that dwell therein shall be forgiven their iniquity. Now this is a glorious prospect which is held out for Jerusalem. The eye of faith now looks beyond the immediate hard circumstances to the glorious prospects of the future. This is the day when the king will be in Jerusalem. The prince of peace will then bring peace to the earth. And Babylon could boast of the Euphrates. Assyria could boast of the Tigris and the upper Zab. And Egypt could boast of the Nile. And in that day, Jerusalem, a landlocked city, can best boast of the Lord as the source of broad waters. What a wonderful picture that we have here that is given to us at this time. And I should say back at verse 20, we have this section beginning. And we're told, verse 21, "...but there the glorious Lord will be unto us a place of broad waters and streams." Jerusalem, a landlocked city, will be a great place. In that day, it'll be a seacoast town for the millennium. Now, we come to the 34th chapter of Isaiah. If you have your Bible, you'll want to turn there. And we are coming to an end here in this section, the first major division of Isaiah. This major division is government of God. Judgment has been the theme all the way through. That's going to change now shortly. And we're coming to the end of this particular section where we've looked at six woes. And there's been a progression in this matter of prophecy. We saw a local situation into which Isaiah spoke. And then he moved out into that broader area as he looked down through the centuries to a time of judgment that was coming again. 
And those things that were immediately happening were merely a little figure of that which is to come. A period of judgment that the Lord Jesus Christ labeled the Great Tribulation period. And then beyond that, the coming of the King. We've seen that. The King is coming. But today, we're not looking for the King. Actually, we're looking for our Savior. We're looking for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. After he takes the church out, the world will go through this time of trouble that he labeled the Great Tribulation. And then at the end of that, the King is coming. We've seen that. And now we see before he comes, and that which will end, the War of Armageddon. Now, this chapter, as we said last time, is in contradiction to the philosophy of this world. You see, man looks to the future as a time when he will so improve the world by his own efforts that he's going to build a utopia. He's going to bring in a millennium. He may call it something else. Man will be capable of lifting himself by his bootstraps. And that's the thinking today the very basic philosophy of evolution. And by the way, evolution is a philosophy and not a science by any means, because there's a difference of opinion about science relative to what happened here a million years ago. The whole philosophy is, though, that there's going to be improvement as we go along. It's onward and upward forever. Our day by day in every way, I'm getting better and better. That's the picture Man has woven that into the fabric of life, that everything that you look at, and I don't care what it is that you look at, you can look at rug making. You go back and see how they used to do it, how they're doing it today. It's great improvement and what it's going to be in the future. They'll have the perfect rug in the future. Of course, they may be able to attain to that Persian rug where you sit on it and take off. And it has everything on it but a steering wheel. I don't know where it would take you, but man's on the way. And he believes that we're moving into something great and good. And the interesting thing is that the Word of God looks forward to a day that's coming. Call it the millennium. It's going to be a better day. But it's not the consummation of man's efforts. It's rather the kingdom that comes through God's power and glory. And before the kingdom is established, everything that man has built apart from God is coming under a frightful judgment. All of man's work is contrary to God, and it must come into a final conflict. Now, that final conflict is labeled in the last book of the Bible as the, actually not battle of Armageddon, but the war of Armageddon. And the sin of man will finally be headed up by the man of sin that will attempt to bring in a kingdom himself, and that kingdom is the great tribulation period. And it can only be ended by the coming of Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom. And this chapter here, therefore, looks entirely to the future. The Assyrian has disappeared. Dalich has this statement, which I think is quite accurate. He says, We feel that we're carried away from the stage of history and are transported into the midst of the last things. 
And these chapters are the last steps whereby our prophet rises to the height at which he soars. Finally, when we come in chapters 40 to the end, after the fall of Assyria, and when darkness began to gather on the horizon again, Isaiah broke away from his own times. The end of all things became more and more his home. It was the revelation of the mystery of the incarnation of God for which all this was to prepare the way. This is tremendous. Now we come here, the indignation of the Lord poured out on all nations. That's in the first four verses. And then we are going to see Idjumea, the target and figure of all God's enemies. And then the intention of the Lord. That is, it's the intention of the Lord that the day of the Lord's vengeance is coming. Now, will you notice this? We have in verse 1, "...come near, ye nations, to hear and hearken, ye people. Let the earth hear, and all that is therein, the world and all things that come forth of it." Now, back at the very beginning of Isaiah, in Isaiah, the first chapter, verse 2, God called heaven and earth to witness of his judgment to his own people Israel. Now, in this chapter, God calls only the nations of the earth to witness his final judgment upon all the nations. And here it is, verse 2. For the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations, and his fury upon all their armies. He hath utterly destroyed them. He hath delivered them to the slaughter. Now, notice the words that have been chosen here to depict this judgment. Indignation, fury, utterly destroyed, and delivered to the slaughter. Why, they are the strongest possible expressions that could be used. And the judgment is universal, and it's severe. It's not only the time of Jacob's trouble, it's the time of the earth's travail. And our Lord spoke of this as a time of unparalleled suffering in the history of the world. The seals, the trumpets, and the vials in the book of Revelation all intensify and confirm this. My friend, whether you believe it or not, the earth that you and I are living in today is moving to the judgment of God. It's coming. And God says it's coming upon this earth. And instead of a great day coming for sinful man... A time of judgment is coming upon this earth. And you can look around you today at this civilization, and everything that you see is going to come in under the judgment bar of Almighty God. Now, verse 3, "...their slain also shall be cast out, and their stink shall come up out of their carcasses, and the mountain shall be melted with their blood." May I say that this, to me, is probably the most repulsive and terrible verse with this description that's in the book of God. I can't think of anything that's worse than this. Now, may I say to you, this confirms what the Lord Jesus said, what the book of Revelation teaches, that there is coming a judgment upon this earth. And I'm sure a great many people doubt it, but... I noticed that down in the Gulf, 
here several years ago when that tropical hurricane, I forget the name of it, it broke on the Gulf Coast there. We traveled along there. We drove for miles. And there are places there that entire sections of cities were taken out. Just absolutely, they were removed. And even after several years, there's nothing in there. There are places where that jungle in that area was just absolutely taken out. Now, there was an apartment house where apparently a group of people that were living fast and furious were. They decided they wouldn't leave. They didn't believe the storm was going to be that bad. So they decided to have a great big beer bus. And instead of leaving, they all got drunk, and they all were killed. Now, they didn't believe that storm was going to come. They ridiculed it. You can do that relative to this earth today. But may I say to you, the Word of God says judgment is coming on the earth. Now, I say that calmly today, but it's coming. And this section through here emphasizes that. Notice verse 4. And all the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll, and all their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falleth off from the vine, and as a falling fig from the fig tree. And all the king's men and all the king's horses won't be able to put it back together again. My friend, when you see that little leaf fall off of the tree, you can get Elmer's glue and put it back. won't do a bit of good. It's not going to stay. It's not going to live. Judgment is coming. You can't keep it from coming, and you can't do a thing in the world about it except just one thing. Make sure that you've got to the shelter. Make sure that you're going to miss the storm. Make sure that you're going to listen to God and remember that he, the Lord Jesus, is a shelter in a time of storm that's coming upon the earth. Now, that's the picture that you have here. Now, he uses a figure of speech beginning here from verse 5. He says, For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Idumea and upon the people of my curse to judgment. Now, God bathes that sword in heaven. That's important to see. When you and I take the sword down here, it's for vengeance or it's for some ulterior motive. When God does it, it's to bring justice and righteousness upon the earth. God's sword is bathed in heaven, and it's going to fall. He says it's going to fall. And the word down here, it's upon Idumea. Idumea is Edom. And Edom is Esau. And Esau represents the flesh, means red. It represents all of the humanity that's in Adam that are rebellious against God and God's people. God says, Esau have I hated. God will judge Edom because they're anti-God, they're anti-Christ, anti-Bible, anti-good, anti-everything that is right. God says he's going to judge you. Now, maybe you don't like that, but you take that up with the Lord. You don't take that up with me, friend, because this is what he says in his word. And if I were you, I'd believe him, because it seems to me to make sense to do that. 
Now, the intention of the Lord is beginning at verse 8. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. Now, this is the day of the Lord's vengeance. We're going to see that again in Isaiah 63. You can't do anything to stop this. You couldn't any more stop this any more than you could put a few drops of distilled water up against Niagara Falls and hope you're going to stop it from running. You just can't stop it, my friend. It's coming upon this earth because God says things have to be made right. And they're going to be made right on this earth. And in order to make them right, he's going to have to put down evil and the rebellious man upon this earth. Now, there are a great many people on this earth that would not bow to God at all. Well, this is his universe. And I don't know where they could go. He has only one place for them, and it is labeled H-E-L-L. And you can think about that as you please, but it's lots worse than if it was made by fire. Now, that's the picture that's given here. And I'm not going into detail here. I have no desire to do that at all. I'm going to let you read this. Now, God's word is inviolate. Not one word. Is going to pass, the Lord Jesus says, until all is going to be fulfilled. And it's good to read the weather report. And a storm is coming. We need to make arrangements for it. Now, when we come to chapter 35, thank God that war of Armageddon isn't the end of all things. We come now to the blessings of the millennium. And this is the picture of the kingdom in chapter 35. And let me give to you what I have written concerning this chapter. This is a poetic gem. There is a high sense of poetic justice in this chapter, which concludes the section on judgment. The fires of judgment have now burned out. The sword of justice is sheathed. The evening of earth trouble is ended and the morning of millennial delights has come. This section closes on the high plain of peace on earth, plenty and prosperity. God's method has always been through suffering to peace, through the night to the dawn, through judgment to salvation, through tears to joy in the morning. The calm of this chapter is in contrast to the storms of judgments of the last chapter. That is the one we've just looked at. And those that even proceeded in it. We can say, as the writer of the Song of Solomon says, the winter is past and the flowers appear on the earth. Now we have here three sections. In the first two verses, material earth will be restored and the curse of sin lifted. This is the body of the earth. And in verses 3 through 9, men will be renewed. Their bodies renewed. This is the soul of the earth, mankind. And then the members of God's family will return to Zion in verse 10. And here you have the spirit of the earth. Now let's look at it like this. In verse 1 here, "...the wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them." And the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. 
Now, the deserts of the world today are not being reduced in size. Actually, they get larger each year. Drought and soil erosion are hastening this process, and today pollution fills this earth. All of this is going to be reversed in the millennium. The smog will be lifted, and the curse of sin removed. And this beautiful statement that is here, the desert shall blossom as the rose. What a happy picture of the earth's future. Now, if you're familiar with the desert that's between me, where I am right now, and where most of you are that's listening to this program today, you're going to be impressed with this statement if you've ever traveled this desert. This outline that I've given here, I wrote this while I was crossing this desert, beginning up in New Mexico and coming to California several years ago. And it was at the time of a drought, and the sandstorms had eroded much of that which was vast grasslands. May I say to you, that'll be reversed. We're told in verse 2, it shall blossom abundantly. Rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, and the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. Paul tells us that creation is groaning and travailing in pain today. In the millennium, all creation will rejoice. Now, in verse 3, we see men are to be renewed also, because the creation is waiting for us to get new bodies, you see. Now we're told, "...strengthen ye the weak hands, and confirm the feeble knees." Say to them that are of fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He'll come and save you. In the midst of the storm of judgments, God's people can rejoice because they'll know that God will come and save them. The church has the added hope and joy of never experiencing the great tribulation period. Then we're told here, Verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert. Sickness and disease and all affliction are the result of man's sin. They're going to be lifted in a millennium. And the parched ground shall become a pool. And there's going to be a highway through this earth. What a beautiful picture you have here. And the ransom of the Lord. Now, this is verse 10. They'll come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They'll obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Can't think of anything nicer than this. And this ends this particular section that we have here. And you can say with that old Puritan Baxter now, Hasten, O Savior, the time of thy return. Delay not, lest the living give up their hopes. Delay not, lest earth should grow like hell, and thy church be crumbled to dust. O hasten that great resurrection day, when the graves that receive but rottenness and retain but dust 
shall return thee glorious stars and suns. Thy desolate bride saith, Come, the whole creation saith, Come, even so come, Lord Jesus. The whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, friends, we've come to a remarkable change in the message in Isaiah. This is now the second major division of Isaiah. And this section here is unlike that which precedes it and unlike that which follows it. This section here will leave the high plateau of prophecy, and it drops down to the record of history. Even the form of language is different. Up through chapter 35, we're in a realm of poetry. Now we'll have prose from 36 through 39, and then at 40 again, we're going to pick up the poetic section. This historic interlude here makes a proper bifurcation in the two great divisions in Isaiah. The first section, what we had, was, as we have seen, a judgment. That was the important thing, the government of God and the method by which God judged. Now, when we get to the last section, we'll see the grace of God. And no longer is it judgment, it is now salvation. And we'll be looking at that, of course, when we get to it. But these four chapters are wedged in here between these two major divisions. And sometimes we raise the question here, why was this put here? And the very interesting reason is that actually this occurs in other places. And why is it repeated here? Well, there are several very significant factors which I think I should mention as we get into this historic area. For instance, the first thing I'd like to say about it, sacred and secular history are not the same. Dr. Jennings, in his fine work on Isaiah, says divine history is never merely history, never simply a true account of past events. That's the end of the quotation. That means that there are great spiritual truths that are couched here in the sacred history that are seen only with the eye of faith. The Holy Spirit must teach us here the divine purpose in recording scriptural history. Now, I want to suggest, therefore, some reasons for this. These incidents, I think, would seem very trite to the average historian and very nationalistic, for they only pertain to the nation Israel. And yet it concerns great world events, because what is recorded here denotes a tremendous change actually in the history of the world. And the second suggestive thing I would note would be this, that we see in this section the transfer of world power from Assyria to Babylon. And Babylon, the first great world empire, and it denotes the beginning of the times of the Gentiles. And it was actually the real menace to God's people. Now, there's another thing I should say. This section is a record of a son of David who was beset by enemies and who went down to the very verge of death 
but was delivered out of it, and he continued to reign. Now, this, I think, foreshadows the great son of David, who was beset by enemies when he came, delivered to death, raised from the dead, and who's coming again to reign. This makes this a very interesting section. Now, I come back to these great significant factors that are in this section. And the second one I want to mention is this here, that this is recorded three times in Scripture. You'll find it in 2 Kings 18 and 19, 2 Chronicles 29 and 30. And we've had it before us at another time, in fact, twice before. And I'll hit it, I think, rather hurriedly. Now we have the third significant and stupendous event. Great miracles are recorded in this brief section. For instance... We see first the death angel slays 185,000 Assyrians. And then we see in this section the sun retreats 10 degrees on the sundial of Ahaz. And the third, God heals Hezekiah and extends his life 15 years. And this section here, it opens with Assyria, closes with Babylon, And in this section, we have two very important letters. The first one was from the king of Assyria, which Hezekiah took directly to God in prayer, and God delivered his people. Now, the second letter was from the king of Babylon, which flattered Hezekiah. He did not take it to the Lord in prayer, and that led, as a result, to the undoing of the southern kingdom and eventually led to its captivity. But we're dealing now with a great king here. Hezekiah was a great king. And in this section, in chapter 36, we see King Hezekiah and the invasion of Sennacherib, king of Assyria. And then in chapter 37, we have King Hezekiah's prayer and the destruction of the Assyrian host. And then in 38, we have King Hezekiah's sickness and his prayer and his healing. And then in chapter 39, we have King Hezekiah played the fool. Now, let's come back to chapter 36, and we see King Hezekiah and the invasions of Sennacherib, king of Assyria. Now, there are actually three great sections here in this second division. We have Hezekiah and Assyria. That's 36 and 37. Then we have Hezekiah and a boil, 38, and Hezekiah and Babylon, chapter 39. Now let me read verse 1. Here we have, Now it came to pass in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the defense cities of Judah, and he took them. Now we have been through here a section beginning way back with Jotham, and we had Ahaz, now Hezekiah, and it began with the death of Uzziah. So now we've come to Hezekiah, who probably was one of the five great kings of Judah, because revival came in their time, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joash, Hezekiah, and Josiah. And we have looked at this over in Chronicles especially. And we find that Hezekiah actually was a great king. 
Hezekiah began to reign when he was five and twenty years old, and he reigned nine and twenty years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. Now, that's Second Chronicles 29, 1 and 2. Now, we have a picture here that Sennacherib, and he was king of Assyria, came down like a flood from the north. He had taken every nation along the way and flushed with victory. Now he comes to Jerusalem and, of course, expects it to fall as the others had. And this man, Hezekiah, was naturally frightened. And very frankly, although a good king and a revival came in his reign, he was, I think, a weak king because he attempted to stave off the invasion of Jerusalem by bribing Sennacherib. We're told that back in Second Kings. Hezekiah stripped the gold and the silver from the temple to meet the exorbitant demands of the king of Assyria. And it was no use because the army of Assyria was outside the gates of Jerusalem now. And what he had paid didn't help at all. You know, that's not something new. Our nation, since World War II, has followed a very weak policy. We have used the almighty dollar to buy friends throughout the world. And friends, we don't have many friends today. You don't buy them that way. The problem is that the real friend that Hezekiah had to finally turn to, we haven't yet learned to turn to, and of course, that's the Lord. Now, verse 2. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem unto King Hezekiah with a great army. He stood by the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. Now Rabshakeh, the general, came down, and he's parked outside the gates of Jerusalem. And he is attempting now to put uh, fear in the heart of Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem so that they would surrender. Now, Hezekiah sends out a delegation to meet with him. Verse 3, Then came forth unto him Eliakim, Hilkiah's son, which was over the house, Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, Asaph's son, the recorder. And Rabshakeh, verse 4, said unto them, Say ye now to Hezekiah, Thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, what confidence is this wherein thou trustest? Now, this man, Rabshakeh, very arrogantly expresses surprise that Hezekiah would even dare resist. And he wants to know the secret weapon in which Hezekiah trusts. And he suggests, first of all, that it might be Egypt. And he deals with these possibilities. And he then dismisses them as foolhardy. First of all, he says... Is he trusting in Egypt? Well, he says in verse 6, Lo, thou trustest in the staff of this broken reed on Egypt. And actually, Hezekiah was looking to Egypt, and he wasn't getting any help there. And in this sense, this man Rabshakeh is accurate. And then he suggests something else. Is it true that you are depending on your God? Why, he says, don't you know Hezekiah has destroyed all the high places? You see, Rabshakeh had no 
sense of spiritual discernment. He didn't distinguish. He thought the worship out yonder under those groves and on hilltops with those heathen altars was the same as the worship of the living God in Jerusalem. Had no discernment. And he just thought this man was destroying the worship of the people so they had no God to turn to. And you know, today there are a great many people that make no discernment every now and then. Some person will write me or some person says to me, well, after all, Dr. McGee, all the churches are the same They're striving for the same place. They're just like old Rabshakeh. They don't seem to know that there's some difference. Well, he made a mistake here. And the third possibility that's suggested here by Rabshakeh reveals the haughty attitude of the Assyrian. There was the bare possibility that Hezekiah was depending on his own resources and manpower to defend the city. And this is what he says. Verse 8, Now therefore give pledges, I pray thee, to thy master, the king of Assyria, and I will give thee two thousand horses, if thou art able on thy part to set riders upon them. He says, well, now to just make things equal, why, he says, we'll give you two thousand horses, and that will make us more or less even, and even then you wouldn't be able to win. And then he suggests the fourth reason. He suggests that Jehovah of Israel has sent the Assyrian against Jerusalem, and therefore Jehovah's on the side of the Assyrian. And every now and then, well, in World War I, the Germans thought God was on their side, and we thought he's on our side. And the interesting thing is, I doubt very seriously whether he's on either side. And in this particular case, it was true God had used the Assyrian to destroy his people, but he's not going to let him take Jerusalem. And Eliakim and Shebna, they said to Rabshakeh, they said, Shush, don't speak so loud, and speak to us in your tongue. We understand it. Don't speak in Hebrew. Because you see, Rabshakeh, he was great at giving out propaganda. Enemies always do that. And he's yelling at the top of his voice as he's giving out these different reasons. Why? Because the wall is filled with soldiers. And he wants the word to get to Jerusalem, you see, and get past these emissaries. And this man, Rabshakeh, just causes him to talk a little louder. Then they go in and they bring word to this man, Hezekiah, of what was really happening. And it was a pretty sad situation, by the way. And so what's going to happen now? Well, he keeps on saying, he says, you don't listen to Hezekiah. Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying that the Lord will deliver you. He's not going to deliver you. Well, here's what happened. Verse 22, then came Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, that was over the household, Shebna the scribe, Joah the son of Asaph, the recorded to Hezekiah with their clothes rent, told him the words of Rabshakeh. Now, clothes rent, they speak of humiliation and shame. After all, it was said of Solomon, in all his glory was not arrayed even as a flower. But clothes, you know, they say today makes the man. Well, when clothes are rent, it speaks of humiliation and shame. Now, that brings us to chapter 37, 
And what does Hezekiah do now with this word brought to him? Verse 1, we have it came to pass. When King Hezekiah heard it, he ran his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. This is a man of faith, by the way. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and the Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests covered with sackcloth, unto Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. And that's another act of faith. He wants a word from God now. Verse 3, And they said unto him, Thus saith Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble, and of rebuke, and of blasphemy. For the children are come to birth, and there's not strength to bring forth. Now, the message to Isaiah was a pretty dark picture. It's rather pessimistic. Day of trouble, rebuke, and blasphemy. Now, he says it just may be the Lord, thy God, will hear the words of Rabshakeh. And this man, Hezekiah, has really an aberration or lapse of faith because he speaks of the Lord as thy God. Why didn't he say our God? And he corrected it, though, when he prayed. You will see that in a moment. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. And now what we have here is God through Isaiah says this, verse 6, Thus saith the Lord, Be not afraid of the words that thou hast heard, wherewith the servants of the king of Assyria blaspheme me. Behold, I'll send a blast upon him. He shall hear a rumor, return to his own land. I'll cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. He won't even fall here. He's going to fall in his own land. God declares now the destruction of Assyria. And when Rabshakeh got back to his army, he found out that the king of Assyria had left Lachish and was going down to Libna to war because at that time the king of Ethiopia and Egypt had come up. And so we find here that the Assyrian host withdraws. And this rumor that came that the main force of the Assyrian army was being attacked by the Egyptian army, and Rabshakeh withdraws. But he sends a word to Hezekiah, said, I'll be back. And now Hezekiah in fear goes in before God. Verse 15, Hezekiah, when he received the letter now, we are told he went in and spread it before the Lord. That's verse 14. And Hezekiah prayed unto the Lord, saying, verse 16, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, that dwellest between the cherubims, thou art the God, even thou alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. Thou hast made heaven and earth. You see, every instructed Israelite didn't think that God, their God, was a local deity that dwelt in a little box in Jerusalem. He was the God of heaven, the God of this earth, the Creator. Now he pleads with him to hear, and he asks him to deliver. And may I say that God sends now back through Isaiah the message, and I'm dropping down to Verse 35, God says, I'll defend this city to save it for mine own sake, for my servant David's sake. And what happened? We're told that the angel of the Lord, verse 36, went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred and fourscore and five thousand. When they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. And that crowd that were corpses, they didn't rise. Let's understand that. 
Now, verse 37, "...so Sennacherib king of Assyria departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh." Now, what happened to him? You'll have to turn to secular history to get the details, but here is what God said came to pass as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrash, his God, that Adramelech and Sherezer, his son, smote him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Armenia. And Ezra Hayden, his son, reigned in his stead. Now, this is actually the history. You can read the day in secular history. This is what happened. And this is the time that this great kingdom of Assyria began to disintegrate and was then taken over, actually, by Babylon. Because down there on the banks of the Euphrates, God has already, you remember, let Isaiah know that he is preparing a kingdom that will be the one to take the southern kingdom into captivity. Assyria would not do it, and they did not, by the way. Now, I've very briefly covered that history because we've actually covered it twice before. But my feeling is that when God says a thing one time, it's important. When he says it twice, it's doubly important. When he says it three times, he intends for us to get the message, by the way. 